Our faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. I was going to sing about faith, and I thought, well, I like to sing the one that comes from Habakkuk. So sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. Maybe I'll read from some of those hymns during the message. But in any event, now please turn with me in your uh, Bibles. Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And I'm going to read from Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. Romans 1, 15 to 17. In this way, or thus, my eagerness to preach the gospel also to you, those in Rome, for... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power to salvation to everyone who believes, to Jew first and also to Gentile. For in it, God's righteousness is being revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous by faith, we'll live. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of His Holy Word this morning. Dear God, thank You for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the only hope of our society or any society. We pray that more and more of that spirit of eagerness to proclaim the gospel as the only way of deliverance from the wrath to come, more and more of that spirit that was in the Apostle Paul would be in us, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, and that you would put that confidence in us as we better understand the gospel, how it reveals your righteousness, and how that righteousness is connected with Saving faith. And dear God, we pray that as we focus on saving faith this morning, please send us the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit and help us. Help us to understand it. Take it to heart and to live in the light of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, we have uh, no safety net. Or we don't have things to stir up your emotions and your feelings and all this stuff. Either God comes and draws near to us and blesses the ministry of the word, or we are of all people the most miserable. And there's nothing more boring and empty than a worship service in which all you have is singing and praying and reading and expounding the Bible. But when God is there, there is spiritual life and there is power and we don't manufacture it and we can't pretend it and we can't counterfeit it. Either God's with us or he isn't. And our hope and prayer is that God will be with us today. And that he will shed light on every heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth that is in this text will grab hold of us so that we will live more and more for God's honor and glory. And will be the instrument because we have confidence in the gospel 
of bringing to our society what it so desperately needs. Good news about God's answer to the greatest problem faced by every human being, and that is the problem of human sin and God's wrath. That's the real issue. And the answer is the gospel. God's message. That message is God's power to save everyone who believes from every branch of the one and only human race, Gentile and Jew. And the reason that message does what it does is because that message is what it is. And in that message, the focus, it's the story of Jesus. It's God's gospel concerning his son. It's and the, the active ingredient that makes it powerful to transform the world and rescue people from all over the world is that it tells us how sinners get right with God. It talks about virtue, righteousness. It's, it's not so much about making people feel good, but it is about bringing sinners to be right with God. It's about righteousness. And it's about righteousness that God requires of sinners to be right. It's about righteousness that God provides. It's about righteousness or virtue in God's eyes that God approves. And that righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. By the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. It's through the virtue of his perfect life. And the virtue in God's eyes, not only the blamelessness and merit of his obedience in his life and in his death. Everything that any sinner needs to be right with God is there in Jesus Christ. He has provided it. It is his obedience that is the ground of that virtue by which sinners get right with God. You say, didn't you preach all that last week? I did. So what are you doing? Preaching it again? Yeah. What do you think? You okay with me preaching it again a little bit? Introduction? Is that okay? Yeah, can I say that again? Because where I'm going today is a little different. Because what this text says is this. Why is the gospel God's power to rescue sinners from sin and wrath from every kindred, tribe, and tongue? Because that gospel reveals God's righteousness. Reveals how sinners get right with God. Reveals the virtue that comes from the obedience of Jesus. And here's the point. This text especially closely links and connects this righteousness of God with faith. This righteousness of God which is being revealed in the gospel, is applied, it is conveyed, it is bestowed and received from faith to faith. There is a special connection between receiving this righteousness as a free gift and faith. Faith has a unique role in connection with the reception and bestowal of the righteousness of God, the virtue of Jesus, by which sinners get right with God. 
Now, one of the great, um, uh, I, one of the great, I, one of the commentators that I think does a great job is what I really mean to say. The commentators are so all over the place about what this means, but Professor Murray, in his commentary, has this insight. He says, if you want to understand the close connection between receiving God's righteousness and faith, the place to look to get the connection is the parallel passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. So I just want to read that for a minute and show you the connection. Romans 3.21, but now, apart from the law, God's righteousness, that is, the virtue that comes from Jesus' obedience, stands manifested because Christ accomplished it. Attested by the law and the prophets, they foretold it. Even, and here's the connection between God's righteousness, the virtue of Jesus, and faith. Even the righteousness of God conveyed no verb, but that's the idea. That's the connection. In the application of redemption, that righteousness of God, that virtue of Christ, is conveyed, it is bestowed by God and received through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is unto all and upon all those that believe, for there is no distinction. So what he says is that God's righteousness in history is accomplished in Christ's life by his obedience. That virtue, once for all, accomplished. And that virtue applied, conveyed, given, received at conversion as a gift. And it is received emphatically and exclusively by faith. It is out of faith and through faith. Faith is the only means by which sinners receive the gift from God. Faith is the empty hand that receives this gift from God. And it is unto and upon faith. Faith is the only criterion that God looks at. God doesn't look at how much money they have. He doesn't look at their ethnic connection. He doesn't look at their upbringing. He doesn't look at anything. He looks at anything else. He looks at only one thing. Whether they're Gentile or Jew, young or old, rich or poor, he looks at one thing. Do they have faith in my son? If they have faith, he gives them as a free gift the righteousness of God that comes from the virtue of Jesus. That's the only thing he's looking for. Faith is the empty hand that receives it, the righteousness as a gift. Faith is what God looks for. It's unto and upon those that believe. So our text shows us this is the core of the gospel. This is what gives the gospel its power to transform the world. The gospel is about God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is especially and exclusively connected to faith. God's righteousness, the virtue of Jesus, saving faith. The means that receives that righteousness. 
The only thing that God looks for, the criteria by which he bestows it, whether you're Gentile, Jew, rich, poor, young, old, male, female, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, God freely gives Christ's virtue, the righteousness of God, as a free gift. And sinners receiving it, that righteousness, the righteousness from God by faith, get right with God. That's the heart of the gospel. You follow that? So I couldn't decide whether that's the introduction or the first point. It's really too long to be an introduction. So it's the first point. The first point this morning, and I'm, I'm sorry, grandson, if you ever listen to this, that I don't follow you with your three alliterated points. The first thing I want to tell you this morning is this text features and underscores the special and unique role of saving faith as the core and heart of the gospel. That God's righteousness received, God's righteousness bestowed, is especially connected to saving faith. Now, that's pretty simple, pretty obvious. Did you have to take a whole point for that. Oh, it's very important, isn't it? Now, even though this text features faith alone, I have to qualify, because you have to qualify everything you say. It doesn't mean that genuine faith is ever alone in the Christian life. Faith is always connected to and associated with repentance. Gospel repentance is never divorced from this saving faith. Gospel repentance has a different focus. Paul says in Acts 20, 21, repentance toward God and faith toward or upon or in our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance has a different focus. The focus of repentance is turning away from sin to God. But there's no such thing as an impenitent faith, just like there's no such thing as an unbelieving gospel repentance. Repentance and faith always go together. And you can't have one without the other. If you repent with genuine repentance, then you believe. And if you believe, then you repent. And furthermore, genuine gospel faith always lasts. It always perseveres. It always continues throughout the entirety of the Christian life. It never stops. And gospel faith is always connected with Gospel holiness. There's no contradiction. The two things go together. So even though it is faith alone by which sinners receive Christ's righteousness, that faith is never alone. But it is always accompanied with every other genuine saving grace. And that faith always endures throughout the entirety of life. So don't misunderstand what I mean when I say faith alone. 
So now, let's continue in our exposition of Romans 1 and verse 17. That was my first point. My first point, very simply, was the unique role of saving faith. Now, secondly, this morning, look at the biblical support. How does the Apostle Paul support the unique role of saving faith with respect to the gospel? How does he support it? He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, as it is written, but the righteous by faith will live. Now that's written in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Do you remember the context of this? And as I speak of the context, I have to tell you a story about why the context is so important. A colleague of mine who entered into glory and entered into heaven about five years ago. Dear beloved brother, the late Dr. Robert Paul Martin, who used to be, for many years, the pastor of our sister church in Seattle that we prayed for this morning. He wrote his doctoral dissertation about the Apostle Paul's use of the Old Testament in Romans. Say, so how do you know that? Because he gave me a copy of his dissertation to read. And I read it. And this is the point that he makes. If you're going to understand Paul's quotes, don't think that he just said, oh, this sounds good. The righteous shall live by faith and just threw it in there and pasted it in there, even though it has nothing to do with the point at hand. As some perversely imagine. But if you're going to understand the significance and the connection he argues in his dissertation, you have to study the context of that quote. And when you study the context of that quote and the meaning in context, then the connection of the Old Testament text that he cites becomes clear. That's what he argued in his doctoral dissertation. You think he's right? Oh, yes, he's absolutely right. And so for that reason, in our scripture reading this morning, we read the book of Habakkuk because that sets the context and we read one very other important, crucial text to give us the historical context. And what was that? Jeremiah chapter 21. Because it was written about that very period of time and it gives us the framework of the, of the statement of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4. So let's talk about the context. The context is Jerusalem is under siege. They're shut up. They're behind the walls. they got their weapons of war. Their enemies are outside the walls. God sends word to them. They said, inquire of Jeremiah. 
Inquire of the Lord. Jeremiah tells him, you're going to die here. I'm going to fight against you. The Chaldeans are coming in here and they're going to burn the city with fire. And Zedekiah, you're going to be taken captive. And, and your, your, your group, your uh, administration is going to be killed. That's what's going to happen. And this is what I want to say, says the Lord, to the people in Jerusalem. Because what's going to happen in that city, they're going to be starving to death. Quote, famine. The unsanitary conditions in that city are going to breed all kinds of illness. And people are going to die from living in those unsanitary conditions. Pestilence. And then the enemies are going to come into the city and they're going to kill people with the sword. They're not going to spare anybody. They're going to kill young, old, male, female. They're going to kill you all. That's what's going to happen. That's the context. But if you leave the city You'll live. The Chaldean army was the instrument in the hand of an angry God to punish the wickedness of those in that city. The wickedness of Zedekiah. The wickedness of those people. Habakkuk struggles with this. Lord, how can you use people like the Chaldeans who were more wicked than the Israelites as an instrument. You're of purer eyes than to behold evil. How can you use those wicked men to punish these people who are wicked, but they're less wicked than the ones you're using to punish them? How can you do this? But God said in anger and in wrath and in indignation, I am sending the Chaldeans as the instrument of my wrath and when I inflict my wrath on this people and on this city, the result is going to be death. And they're going to die from starvation and sickness and from the sword of the army of the Chaldeans. The wrath of God is coming on this city. The wrath to come. And I'm going to show you, Jeremiah says, you inhabitants of Jerusalem... I'm going to show you the way of escape from death and the wrath of God to come. Because it's coming. And Habakkuk's saying, Lord, what can I do? I just have to sit and wait till the Chaldeans come and your wrath is inflicted on this city. That's it, right? You get the context? The wrath of God is coming. How will they escape from the wrath to come? How will they escape from death? Jeremiah said, I'm going to show you inhabitants of Jerusalem the way of life, the way of death. The way of death, stay in that city. Stay behind the walls. Stay behind the protection of the army. Stay behind your weapons of war. And have your confidence in those things. And you're going to, if you stay there, you're going to die. You're either going to starve to death or you're going to 
die of the pestilence, the sickness that comes from the unsanitary conditions, or you're going to die from the Chaldean sword. You stay in this city, you're going to die. But if contrary to the sight of your eyes, the protection of the walls and the army and the weapons, You go out of that city to your enemies, then you're going to live. You're going to escape from the wrath of God through those people by going out of the city. You're going to live. So what's going to control your life? Sight of your eyes or the word of God? The word of God says the way of life is not what it appears to be. The way of life is not the walls and the army and the weapons and the food stores. That's not the way of life. That's the way of death. The way of life, follow my word. Get out of here right now. That's the context. So, what then is the meaning of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4? You see, some people take the text, the righteous by faith will live. They take the text to mean the righteous should conduct his life by faith. But that's not what that text says. That's not talking about how you ought to conduct your life. It's not talking about moral renewal. and That's not what it's about. If that's what the text is about, why is Paul quoting that? It has no relevance to it. And just misquoting it out of context? No, that's not right. That's not what the text means. What does it mean? The righteous, by faith, will save his life. The righteous, by faith, will escape the wrath to come. He will not be killed by the wrath of God coming upon this city. But by faith he'll live. The righteous will live and not die. He will escape the coming divine wrath by means of faith. In other words, only those who are right with God will escape from death inflicted by divine wrath when the Chaldeans come upon that city. Only the righteous will escape from the wrath to come and soon to come. And how will they escape from that coming divine wrath? By faith. Only one way. Faith is the way. It is the way of life by which they will escape from the wrath to come. And now what is it about faith? That's connected with escaping from the wrath to come in that text. Two things. Which brings me to my third and final point. So the first point, the special role of faith. Second point is Paul's biblical support for that special role of faith. And now finally, the practical impact, which is the glory of God. What is there about faith? that so especially suits it for this special role illustrated in the case 
of those that escaped from the wrath to come during the siege of Jerusalem. Well, what did those people have to do? First of all, they had to receive the word of God as true and act upon it. That's what faith does. Faith receives God's word as true. What did God's word say? You want to live? Get out of here. What does the sight of your eyes say? If you want to live, stay behind the protection of the walls and the army. What does the word of God say? If you want to live, leave the walls, leave the protection of the army, go out to your enemies. What does faith do? Faith credits God's word as true and acts upon it. By faith they live. By faith they escape the wrath to come because they credit God's word as true and do what God's word says. That's what faith does. That's why faith is perfectly suited to be the instrument of receiving God's righteousness as a gift and escaping from the wrath to come. In a similar way, saving faith credits the gospel as true and acts upon it Romans 10, how shall, verse 14, till they call on him in whom they've not believed, and how shall they believe in him whom they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach except they be sent? So belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of the message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been begotten again by incorruptible seed, the word of God, which lives and abides, and this is the word of good tidings preached to you. Faith credits the gospel word as true. Faith acts upon the gospel word. Faith believes what God says. Faith regulates its behavior by God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God is the source of faith. Faith receives God's word, embraces God's word. That's why faith is the means of receiving the righteousness of God. And faith not only receives God's word as true, acts on it, that's how they escaped from the wrath. Can you imagine being in that city under that siege and you get this message from Jeremiah that says you want to live? Get out of here. What are you going to do? You're going to say, wait a minute. These walls. Where am I safer? It, un, behind these walls? Or out there with no weapons right in front of the enemy? This, this army. Where am I safer? Behind the protection of this army? Or out there with the enemy? Can you imagine what did it take to leave that city and go out there to the enemy 
believing that that was the way to live. What did it take? It took one thing, faith. What did that faith do? Believe the word of God rather than the sight of their eyes. What did that faith do? Acted on the word of God. Did Paul just yank that out of context? Uh-uh. No way. That's what that text teaches. It teaches that the way that God uses is the way of faith. Credit, that, that's a general principle of God's dealings with people. The way he deals with us, the way he dealt with those people during the siege of Jerusalem and the way he deals with us from every kindred, tribe, and tongue in the gospel is this. Credit my word as true and act on my word as true. Even if it seems contrary to everything you see, trust me that what I'm telling you is true and act on it. That's the way God saves. That's the point of that text in Habakkuk. That's the connection between faith and the righteousness of God. Now, does it make sense? Oh, and there's more. Say there's more? Yeah. What does faith do? Faith not only credits God's word as true and acts on it, faith relies on God alone for deliverance. It doesn't rely on the walls, it doesn't rely on the army. It relies on God. All right, God said, if I go out there to these enemies, I'm going to live. How's that going to happen? There's no walls. There's no army. I don't have weapons. There's no earthly thing to protect me. The only protection I have is from God. I have to rely on God alone on his goodness alone, on his power alone, on his provision alone. There's no earthly army going to save me if I go out of these walls. I'm not going out with weapons to fight like a commando. I'm going out there helpless. Humanly speaking, my only hope, my only strength, is God. So if I'm going out there, I'm going to rely on God alone. On His protection and His provision. And I don't know how He's going to save me from this army, but I trust Him. And my confidence is in Him and in His goodness and in His power and in His grace. And I can't explain how I'm going to get rescued from death if I go out of these walls. But I know that God said it, and I trust him, and I depend on him and on him alone to spare and rescue my life and to spare me from his wrath that's coming on this city. You think that has relevance to the gospel? What does saving faith do? Saving faith not only credits the word of God as true and acts on it. Saving faith 
relies on God alone and his power alone to rescue us from sin and wrath. The focus of saving faith is Jesus Christ. It's the same principle of Habakkuk chapter 2. The very same principle that God rescues from his wrath by means of faith. Faith that credits his word as true and acts on it. And faith that relies on God alone. And gospel saving faith relies on God incarnate alone. On his work. Your work not mine, O Christ. My faith looks up. This is the song I was going to sing. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. It's his work, not mine, upon which I rely. Not my righteousness, but the virtue of his obedience. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Your work alone, O Christ, to me can pardon speak. Your power alone, O Son of God, can this awful bondage break. That's what faith does. That's the principle that the Apostle Paul saw in that text. That's why that text is relevant. Because it teaches that God uses faith as the instrumental means to deliver his people from his wrath. That's the very same principle that pertains to the gospel and the righteousness of God. It's received by faith. It's bestowed to those who believe. Those who credit God's word as true and act on it. Those who rely on God's grace and God's power and provision alone and trust Christ alone as the only way of salvation. Now, it's very clear in Romans chapter 10 that this is the case. That saving faith calls on Christ, God incarnate, relies on him alone. Because, Romans 10.9, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And again, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith relies on him. It's faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith relies on what he did. His perfect obedience. Faith relies on on his virtue, the virtue, the credit, the blamelessness of his perfect obedience to God's law. Faith relies on that. Faith relies on the virtue, the merit of his atoning work on the cross. Faith relies on that. My sin is pardoned. I rely on one thing. Jesus died for me. I'm accepted with God. I rely on one thing. Jesus lived for me. I rely on the power of God alone, on the power of Christ alone, and the virtue of Christ alone, 
in his perfect life, in his atoning death, that's where my faith rests. That's where my confidence lies. God alone rescues me from my sin and from the wrath to come. I live. I escape from the wrath to come. I have eternal life. Like they escaped from the coming wrath that destroyed that city by means of faith. So we escape from the eternal wrath that will destroy this world by means of faith. Faith, like they, in their faith, credited God's word as true, contrary to the sight of their eyes, and acted on it, and had to rely on the power of God alone to rescue them from his wrath, so we too credit God's gospel word as true and act upon it and rely on the power of God alone in Christ to save us from our sin and from the wrath of God. Does that make sense? Now by way of conclusion, where then is the boasting? This method of faith, Paul says in Romans 3, he says, where is the boasting? He says, it's excluded. we got nothing to brag about. By what manner of rule or rule of law or what manner of law or rule or code or principle is this boasting left out of Christian religion? One of works? No. But by a rule or code or principle of faith. This principle of faith calls for humility. I mean, what do we have to brag about? We rely totally on God and on God alone to rescue us. We deserve to go to hell. And the only escape is through God's work and God's power. We simply have to trust him and call on him and rely on him to rescue us from his wrath. That's the only way. So we have absolutely nothing to boast or brag about. It is all of God, and it is all of grace from beginning to end. And furthermore, this very same principle, the principle of faith, it's not just limited to the way that we escape from the wrath to come. That principle, illustrated in what happened in the siege of Jerusalem, that principle could be illustrated in so many of our lives. We don't just begin the Christian life by faith or end the Christian life by faith. We live the Christian life by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. By faith we see what we can't see with our own eyes. That God runs the world and sets up over it whosoever he will. By faith, we believe the word of God that God created this universe and everything in it. By faith, we see a brighter world above. By faith. We know that Christ is coming back. By faith we know that there is life after death. By faith we know that he will come 
back to this world. And when he does, he will bring with him the angels of his power. And then there will be accountability to God. And all of the wicked will be judged. And people are talking about the fact that there's no accountability. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. There sure is accountability. Maybe people will get away with gross wickedness in this world. But what will it profit any of us if we gain the whole world and get away with murder and lose our own soul? Dear people, by faith we know there will be an accounting. And every one of us will stand before Christ in the day of judgment. The wicked on the one hand, the righteous on the other. And every single person will be judged by Christ and will be held accountable for the way we lived in this life. By faith we see that. By faith. Not only do we get right with God by faith, we walk with God by faith. That principle of faith is associated with the gospel, with the righteousness of God, and with the entirety of the Christian life. May God be pleased to encourage your heart, dear Christian, to understand the gospel more clearly, to love the gospel more dearly, to present the gospel more plainly and courageously and lovingly and to plead with God that the gospel would come in power, and to plead with God more faithfully, and to walk with God more humbly. By what rule? By a rule of works? No, but by a rule of faith. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it reveals God's righteousness, the virtue of Christ's obedience. And that virtue is connected especially with faith, saving faith. And saving faith, according to Scripture, is perfectly suited for that because it credits God's word to be true and relies on God's power alone. That's what Habakkuk was saying. That's why it's relevant. Well, that's what I wanted to say this morning. May God be pleased, dear people, to bless his holy word to our hearts for his honor and glory. You see, because the way of faith, and this is the final thing I'll say, the way of faith is a way that brings honor and glory to him. When faith is the way, and Christ's righteousness is the way, Christ's righteousness the ground and faith the means, when that's true, God gets all the glory. And he deserves all the glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Pray that we would take to heart the reality of the virtue of Jesus received by faith, bestowed by faith to everyone who believes. Lord God, help us more and more to walk by faith, not by sight. We can't even imagine how difficult it would be for righteous people in Jerusalem during those days in that siege. How they had to trust your word and your power alone Leave that city. How difficult that must have been. 
We pray that as you gave them faith to escape from the wrath to come, so also that you would increase our faith to escape from the wrath to come by means of faith, to live the Christian life by means of faith, to honor and glorify you by faith in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just have a word of benediction and then you're dismissed. From 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where we read, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.